Our reading this morning is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I think I was with you in April, and some of you may recall, if you've got a good mind, a good memory, you may recall that we looked at part of this chapter. Uh, I'm going to look at a different part. Don't worry, I haven't forgotten that I preached on this passage the last time. Last time we were thinking about motivation. How are we motivated to continue to live the Christian life? We're to keep on keeping on in the Christian life, in the narrow path. And we need motivation t- at times. In verse 11 to 13, we notice the motivation was the fear of the Lord. And then verse 14 and 15, we notice the second motivation was the love of Christ. Christ's love for us. We love him because he first loved us. And the third motivation was the power of the Spirit. It's his work. He's the one that creates uh, people anew. We'll take time and we'll read the whole of the chapter down to chapter, uh, verse 2 of chapter 6. 2 Corinthians 5. Let's hear God's word. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed... We have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us, so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen, rather than what is in the heart. If we're out of our mind, it's for the sake of God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. But for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. All this is from God, 
who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain, for he says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and at the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Amen. May God add his blessing to the public reading from his own word. I want to think with you on verses 18 to 21 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that chapter we read together. As I've indicated to the children, the key word there is reconciliation. One form or other of the word occurs five times in these four verses. Most of us are quite familiar with the meaning of the word, and I was too, but I decided I would look up on the internet to see what uh, they were saying about the word. And the first one that I came to said that reconciliation is the process of two previously alienated parties coming to peace with each other. In other words, two people or two parties have fallen out and there is need for a mediator to bring the two together again. Of course, we are very familiar with this. It can happen so often in terms of family disputes. Husband and wife fall out, two brothers fall out, two sisters fall out. They stop speaking. There's a barrier between them. And until that barrier is removed, there's the problem with their fractured relationship. Or think of the industrial disputes that are presently taking place in our country with so many strikes and people on the picket line. There's the workers and there's the employers. And they have, uh, they're not agreeing on the wages or the conditions. There's a barrier. And as a result, all of us have to suffer. There's the disagree. And there's need for talks in order to settle those disputes. We, of course, in Northern Ireland have lived through 30 years of violence and war and terrorism, and we know something about the barriers between two communities. Even though the war officially has ceased, there's still tensions between the communities, and there's need for reconciliation. And I suppose the worst form at the moment of the need for a reconciliation is the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And as long as that war continues, there's people who are being bombed and there's people who are dying and being killed and property is being destroyed. There's need for reconciliation. And I'm sure you could think of many other circumstances where there's definitely a need for reconciliation where peoples or 
or groups of peoples have fallen out and there's need for talks. There's need for barriers to be removed. That's the background to the meaning of the word reconciliation. In this passage and indeed in many other passages in the scriptures, there's a rift between God and man. And that rift goes back a long time. It goes right back to Genesis chapter 3 when Adam ate the forbidden fruit. And he went from a state of innocence and a state of intimacy with God to a state of, of being guilty and estranged from God. And because of his rebellion and his sin, he has passed that rebellion and sin on to all of us, his posterity. And we have been born in sin and shapen in iniquity and we're guilty of committing sins against God. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that we are a people who have turned our back on God and that we are separated from God because of our wickedness and sin. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, which introduces the story of the flood. It says there, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become. And that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And Isaiah summarizes it in Isaiah 59 and verse 2. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. So he does not hear you. Man, you and I, men and women, were alienated from God. Because of our sin, which has created an enormous barrier. In fact, in Romans 5 and verse 9, it tells us that we are by nature God's enemies. That's strong language, isn't it? But that's the Christian position and the understanding of the scriptures that we're born in sin and we are enemies of God. We're full of sin and rebellion and iniquity and we're Hostile towards God. You only have to look at the Ten Commandments, which is a summary of God's will. And if we're honest this morning, every one of us will say that we've committed, we've broke every single commandment that is listed. As a result, there's this great barrier between us and God, a holy God, and us the sinful people. And that's the reason why there's so much trouble uh, and problems in the world today. Now we need to emphasize this because there are other alternative theories. And one that's still popular today is that we are increasingly getting better as we evolve. Theologians from the late 19th century sort of began to propagate this view. They envisaged that as mankind was educated better then they would become better people and they'd become more like God but unfortunately for them and for their theory there was two world wars during the last century and there's been many subsequent wars since that calls this theory into question truth is man's not getting better man is getting worse he's alienated from God. Indeed, man hates God. Oh, you may say, well, that's a wee bit strong. I, 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 I'm not sure I would say I hate God. I maybe don't love him. 
but I don't hate him. But here's the thing. If it's the God of your imagination, you don't hate, hate that God. But if it's the God of the Bible, a God who makes demands, a God who's holy, then we all by nature hate that God because we're self-made people. We want to be our own boss. We don't want to be told what to do. And we don't want some God way up there telling us that we shouldn't do this, that and the other thing. And when we hear that being preached or talked about, we hate that God. We do not want to be ruled by a God who takes away our liberty and freedom. Self-made people. We don't want to be ruled by God. But because we're Adam's descendants, that's our position. We're, we're alienated from him. There's a great chasm between a holy God and sinful man. A great barrier that hides our face from him. That's the background to these verses. Man is alienated from God. The question, therefore, I want us to address this morning is, how can we rebellious, sinful people, how can we be brought back into a right relationship with God? Three things I want you to notice in this passage from verse 18. First of all, the initiative in reconciliation. Verse 18. It says there all this is from God. Normal circumstances, the person to blame or a third party, a mediator, would take the initiative. A guilty party would normally offer an apology and the harmed party would accept that apology. Take a ridiculous example of your next door neighbour coming home drunk and he throws a brick through your window. And the morning he's embarrassed and he comes round to your house and he's all apologetic and he promises that he's going to fix your window. And you accept that apology when he fixes the broken window. The offender takes the initiative to offer and to make reconciliation but here it's different God is not the offending party God's the offended one and yet it says he has taken the initiative look at verse 18 all this is from God what's all this it's going back to verse 17 the new creation God making people anew it's salvation it's come from God he has taken the initiative it says, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And verse 19 amplifies by saying that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. See, way back in eternity, according to the Bible, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they planned salvation. When Adam sinned, that didn't take God by surprise. But God had a plan that he would save his people from their sin. And so part of that plan involved 2,000 years ago that Jesus Christ would come into this world. He would live a perfect life. And then he would die. He would hang on a, a Roman cross. And in doing that, in living the perfect life and keeping the law perfectly and in dying on the cross, he was doing something to initiate this salvation, this reconciliation. And so we read, 
Jesus left the realms of glory and did come down here. He died on a cruel cross. And in doing that, he was doing something to remove the barrier of sin, which we'll see a wee bit about in a minute. It says in verse 18, not counting men's sins against them. That's the proof that God has reconciled us to himself. We should have our sins counted against us. We're guilty. And we deserve to be punished. But God doesn't pronounce us guilty. Rather, in the gospel, he pronounces us not guilty. Our sins are not held against us. In other words, God removes the barrier in order that the holy God and sinful man could be reconciled to one another. This is the work of God. He has taken the initiative to reconcile people like you and I to himself. Friends, if there was a ledger, and if it contained all and every sin that I've committed, or all and every sin that you've committed, then if God was to deal with us in strict justice, all of us would be condemned, and we'd deserve it. But God has dealt with our sin. And he's reconciled us to himself through Christ. That's the amazing good news. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That God the offended party has done something. In order that we can be brought back into our right relationship with himself. I wonder do you recognize that? And do you rejoice in that this morning? The initiative in reconciliation, God has taken the initiative and he's done everything that's needed. Second thing to notice is the basis of reconciliation. Look at verse 21. For here's an important question. How can God pronounce us not guilty when we are clearly guilty? If he pronounces me not guilty, then there's... There's something strange about that because I know that I'm guilty. I've sinned against God in so many ways. I've broken his commandments. How can he declare me not guilty? If there was a court case tomorrow morning in Belfast High Court and, and the, the accused uh, admitted that he had murdered someone, and then the judge went on to say, I, I pronounce this man not guilty, there would be an outcry against the judge. And rightly so. So how can God declare you and I who are guilty, not guilty? The answer is found in verse 21. Where it tells us that God punished Christ instead of us. Look what the verse says. It says, God made him who had no sin. Christ had no sin. That's what the Bible declares throughout. It tells us of the innocence of Jesus. I could give you dozens of references. Let me just give you a few. Hebrews 4 verse 15 tells us Christ was, had no sin. We have a high priest who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews seven twenty six: such a high priest meets our need, one who is pure and blameless and and holy, set apart from sinners. 
1 Peter 2 verse 22, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. 1 John 3 verse 5, but you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins and in him was no sin. And if you read the accounts of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, the witnesses around the cross, they testify that this man had done nothing wrong. The centurion's testimony, the dying thief's testimony, Jesus had done no wrong. He was without sin. But notice also verse 21 tells us Christ became sin. Why did he die if he was innocent? Why did he endure the curse of God? Because Deuteronomy tells us that anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed by God. Why was Jesus cursed by God if he was innocent? The answer He was made sin for us. Do you remember the story in the Old Testament of the Passover in the book of Exodus? God had warned the Israelites that the the angel of death was going to pass throughout Egypt. And when the angel of death passed throughout Egypt, the firstborn of every household was going to be slaughtered. But the Israelites were pre-warned about that and they were told that if they killed a lamb and they shed the lamb's blood and put the lamb, splattered the, the blood upon the door, then when the angel of death came past and if he saw the blood, this firstborn would be saved. And on that fateful night, every Egyptian firstborn was killed. But when the angel of death saw the blood with the Israelite homes. The firstborn was spared. You see, the lamb was killed instead of the firstborn. That's a picture of what Jesus Christ has done. He took the punishment instead of the sinner. I started the service by reading from Isaiah 53. Let me read a couple of verses to you again. Surely Jesus took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered Jesus stricken by God. But Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Jesus and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people Jesus was stricken. Prophecy of what was going to happen 600 years after Isaiah wrote those words. Here we're told that Jesus became a sin offering. Just as the lamb in the Old Testament was killed in the place of the firstborn, so Jesus took the place of sinners. He took the guilt and the dreaded consequences of being separated from God. He suffered the wrath of God upon himself. In other words, the mass of my corruption and my sin was laid upon him, and he suffered and endured agony for three hours of darkness while God was meeting out punishment upon Jesus. Jesus was our substitute. 
Isaac Watts says, Bearing sin and scoffing rude, In my place condemned he stood, Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a saviour. Jesus was without sin. Jesus became sin. What was the result? We are counted righteous. So that, verse 21, in him we might become the righteousness of God. All our sins were credited to Christ. And the spotless perfection of his righteousness was credited to us. So we're declared not guilty. One writer refers to this as a sweet exchange. He writes, O sweet exchange, O inscrutable operation, O unexpected blessing, that the lawlessness of many should be hidden in the one righteous person, and the righteousness of one should justify the lawless many. God in his amazing grace, treating Christ as a sinner, so that the sinner might be treated as righteous. Our sin is reckoned as his, so that his righteousness might be reckoned as ours. We're all familiar with bank accounts, aren't we? We can only take money out if we put money in. And this is an accounting metaphor here, the sweet exchange. Into my account goes the righteousness of Christ. And I'm declared not guilty. My sin is paid for. The amount of debt that I owe has been paid for by Jesus dying on the cross. And so I'm free. I'm free of the condemnation. That word imputed that was in, in Psalm 32 simply means put to my account. What a blessed condition that I'm in a right relationship with God. Verse indicates that Jesus is my substitute. He died for me. He was wounded for me. He bore the wrath of God for me. He was condemned instead of me. That's the gospel, my friends. Can you see that? Jesus dying on the cross. It's not just an example of, of, of doing good, as some of the liberal theologians would tell us. It's not that. It's Christ hanging on the cross, dying and bearing upon himself my sin, taking the punishment for it. He has paid my debt. Many years ago, I can't remember exactly what it was, but I think it was our 25th wedding anniversary. And when you reach that number of years together, it would be a good thing to celebrate it. So you don't just go out to the fish and chip shop and get a takeaway. And I decided I would take my wife 
to a posh hotel. She's a posh lady, and uh, I thought I would take her to a hotel, uh, uh, and we'd have a meal. Uh, and so I booked it, and the night came, and uh, we went to this hotel. It was lovely. And as we were going in, we met some people we knew from the church, and they asked us what we were doing, and we told them we were celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary. And we were ushered into the uh, dining room, and everything was beautiful. The chandelier was shining. The, the table, there was a, 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 an immaculate tablecloth on, on, on the table, and I noticed all these, 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 this cutlery. In our house, I do the washing up, so I have one fork and one knife for each of us. That's, that's enough. But there were three or four sets of, of forks and knives sitting there, and I thought, what's all these for? And Jenny explained it to me that you start at the outside and you come in. And I thought, that's good, I'm going to have four courses. So that was all right, and we had our four courses. And our third course, I think, was the, the sweet course, and the chef was told that it was our anniversary and he, he wrote along the, around the plate and with chocolate happy anniversary. It was a lovely evening that we had and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it uh, and we came to the end and we uh, had to go uh, uh, and I wondered about getting out somewhere out the back door to escape the, the bill but I uh, had to go and I got my credit card out and went to the receptionist and I said I'm here to pay my bill. And she said to me, oh, uh, you don't owe us anything. Mr. So-and-so paid the bill for you. And I thought, that's a very kind thing for him to do. And I phoned him up the next morning and I told him, I was so grateful and thanked him very much. And I felt like saying to him, if you want to do it again, I'll be happy to accept another meal. But I, I, I kept that to myself. Amazing thing, that, that man paid my debt I, I could have just about managed it when I looked at the prices but he paid it for me and that's a faint illustration is it not of what Jesus Christ has done for me on the cross I cannot possibly pay the debt that I owe to him but Jesus has paid it all and therefore I'm free I wonder, have you understood that? And I wonder, have you thanked the Lord for what he's done on the cross for you? Well, this is the simple gospel, isn't it? But it's profound that Jesus paid the debt for our sin. Do we trust him? Have we come to him? Have we thanked him for what he's done for us? third thing to notice in the passage is the agents of reconciliation. Look at verse 20. Because of what God has done in Christ on the cross, we who have been reconciled to him are now Christ's ambassadors. I'm sure you know what an ambassador is. He or she is someone appointed by the government to go and represent the government in another country. And the job of the ambassador is to deliver any messages from his government to the government of the country he's living in. And 18 months ago or thereabouts, uh, the British ambassador in Russia was asked to go to the government in Russia and tell them in no uncertain terms that we as Britain did not agree with them invading another country. 
And that was the job of the ambassador to convey that message to that government. And Paul, when he uses this bold analogy to describe his ministry, he's saying two things. He's saying, first of all, I'm commissioned by God to speak with authority. And I'm speaking on behalf of God. And secondly, I'm not at liberty to tone down or to change this message. I must deliver the message that God, my sovereign, has said to me. And so the message that I preach is not something I've made up. It comes from God. I deliver it as he's given it to me. What's that message? Verse 20. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. Paul is saying to the Corinthians that God has done everything to remove the barrier of sin. Therefore he appeals to them and to us to be reconciled to God. He's not saying make peace with God by doing X, Y and Z. He's saying be reconciled to God because I have done everything necessary. I I've sent Jesus to die on the cross to take the punishment. Therefore, be reconciled to God. Accept, the, embrace the offer of reconciliation is what the, the Greek language is meaning in the passive tense. Embrace the offer of reconciliation. I've done it all. Therefore, embrace Christ. Receive his free offer of the gospel. Jesus has paid the full price. And when should you accept Christ? When should you embrace the offer of reconciliation? Verse 2 of chapter 6. Now. Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. As I conclude, can I bring two applications to you? First of all, if you're a Christian, you're an ambassador. That's what Paul is saying in these verses, that we are ambassadors. We speak on behalf of Christ. And the message that we are to tell people is, be reconciled to God. But in it very simply, when we have opportunity we don't buttonhole people. But when we have opportunity, we talk to them about Jesus. We tell them who he is. We tell them that he died on the cross. We tell them that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. All of us as believers, that's our duty. That's our job. We're to be ambassadors for Christ. I wonder, are you doing that? Are you taking the opportunities that come your way to tell people of Jesus in your workplace, on the farm, in the office, in the factory, your neighbors? I'm sure they're distressed at times. I'm sure they're in need at times. They need someone to point them to Jesus. And you're the one to do it, to tell them of Jesus. Finally, if you're not a Christian this morning, you don't have to work your way to heaven. You don't have to do this or that 
or the other thing. I used to think when I was a boy that I had to reform my ways first and then come to Christ. But no, you come as you are. You come as a sinner. And you trust Jesus to save you. He's done it all. He's paid the price. Embrace Jesus. And do it now. Now is the day of salvation. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. Now is the day. Trust Jesus this morning to take away your sin. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel story. We thank you for this word, reconciliation, that tells us of what God has done in Christ in order that we might be saved. And We pray, O God, that this will thrill our hearts as believers. We pray, O God, that we might see ourselves as your spokesmen and women, that we will be people who will want to talk often about Jesus so that others will see that we love him and others will come to know him also. And we pray that your spirit will write the words of the, the, these, this text on many a heart today. And if there's those who as yet don't know the Savior, may they trust Jesus as their own Savior as he's freely offered in the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with each of us now and always. Amen.